Today comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, David. All right, let's get to it. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, actually. We have two paragraphs at the end of chapter 1 that we're also going to cover today, but the vast majority of our time will end up being spent on that last paragraph that uh, David just read. So three accounts today, three different, um, some people call them pericopes that we'll be looking at, but they're all related. And here is the big idea in today's, um, all the passages put together. The big idea is that Jesus' words are bold because He is Lord. Jesus' words are bold because He is Lord. What we'll do is we'll uh, examine the three texts first and... um, Take them each one at a time, and then I'm going to end with three uh, touch points in life, three points of application for us. So back up to chapter 1, verse 35, and let's read that paragraph. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So again, there's that reference to Galilee. That's primarily where Jesus' ministry was uh, for the bulk of his three-year ministry. And it's interesting, he's, he's with these guys and he's been doing some stuff. We talked about casting out demons last week. And now he decides to get up and go out in isolation where he could pray. So Jesus prayed. And we can tell from the text here the fact that he needed to separate himself from people, that he was out there long enough that they started to miss him and started to go look for him. We can tell that this was not some 21st century American Christian ease type prayer. This was not a brief or token prayer. Jesus went out there and really spent some time on prayer. And I think this is helpful to us. If the Son of God needs to pray like this, so do we. And, and, and it's true. If, if we were to have 
If we were to ask everybody in this room, how's your prayer life? Very few people would actually say it's good. Even those who have a pretty good prayer life, especially by comparison, even they would not feel like it's, it's quite up to uh, snuff. Uh, it's interesting, um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, so we're talking about, I don't know, 500 years ago, 16th century, um, the biographers of Luther record that he used to pray about two hours every single day. And I know some of you are like, well, it was easy for him. He didn't have distractions like digital communication and Netflix and all this stuff. You know, he, it was easy for him to pray two hours a day. Believe me, Martin Luther thought that he was um, busy as well, uh, just like we think we're busy. And, and it's interesting because uh, a couple of the biographers even record him saying that the busier he is, the more he feels like he has to pray. So much so that, that he would get up sometimes and, and he would say, you know, I have so much to do today that I'm going to have to pray an extra hour. You and I look at our busy schedules and we say, we have so much to do today, maybe I just shouldn't even bother with prayer because I need to get all this stuff done. Uh, one of the calls on the life of faith is that we at least take some opportunity at times to slow down and be with God. We, uh, we promote, we encourage, um, we proclaim the importance at Redemption Church of being in community, being in a redemption community, being in small groups, being in Christian community. We believe this is very important and we stand by that. But it's also important to find your time with God as well, just as Jesus did. But you can see in this passage also uh, some other things that are happening. Apparently, the news of Jesus and his acclaim spread faster than a popular YouTube video, and now everyone wants Jesus, and they start to come out with him, and they, and they come with desires and, and reasons that they're not necessarily dishonorable, but they don't necessarily line up with what Jesus came for. And so there, there begins this tension now between what the people want and who Jesus really is. And so, for instance, we see them coming with their agendas, the, you know, Peter comes out and he's like, I, I don't understand, why is Jesus out praying when, when we could be advancing our cause? I mean, we've got the guy now. We've got the guy that everybody's looking at and we're with him. He picked us, we get to be with him. Let's expand this, um, this organization, this kingdom. Let's, let's do something, let's uh, make it about us and make it about our size and make it be bigger. Um, Peter does a, this a lot in the Gospels and especially in the Gospel of Mark. And, and when we get to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8 is my favorite chapter of this Gospel. It's interesting because th this all kind of comes to a head there when Jesus finally rebukes Peter and he says, Peter, here's your problem. You are thinking way too much about the things of man and you don't think enough about the things of God. And I would say that we all have that problem, don't we? Peter misses the point. We miss the point as well. I say this a lot. There's a little bit of Peter in all of us. A little bit of Peter in all of us. And then the second thing they come, they just come with raw self-centeredness. They have their agendas, but it's very self-centered. One scholar writes this, the human condition leads us to attempt to take advantage of anyone who can prop us up. The human condition leads us to take advantage of anyone who can prop us up. This is just part of our fallen nature. This is part of what sin has done 
to us. Paul says in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but make sure you're looking uh, at the interests of others as well. This is the opposite of what social scientists call social exchange. Social exchange is a theory that has guided research in social science for decades now, and and it's been around for, I I would say, probably around 50 years now, and it's never been falsified. And here's what social exchange says. It says that you and I, we enter into relationships for the reason of the potential profits that we can get out of that relationship. We enter into and stay in relationships primarily so that we can get something out of it less than what we necessarily put into the relationship. Now, am I bashing on relationships? Aren't they good? Yes, they are good, and we should be in relationship. But there's that line that you and I have to examine all the time between relationships for good community and relationships where we're really just using and manipulating people. And these people were coming, and they were trying to manipulate Jesus. They, they were continually trying to make Jesus conform into their image of the Messiah rather than them conforming into his image. And so there's tension there again, and that is a little bit of a problem. So we see that Jesus went out. He, he prayed. He was a prayer, and that's a really good thing. But we also see here that by his own proclamation, by his own declaration, Jesus was also a preacher. He was there to proclaim the gospel of God and to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand. This, is, this was really important to Jesus. You can read through all of the gospels and you, would, you wouldn't be able to miss the fact that as much as Jesus did all of these other things, he was primarily about preaching, about proclamation, about the gospel, about the kingdom of God. Even to the guy who does miracles. We think of Jesus, he does miracles and he heals and all that, but primarily he was about preaching and teaching and proclamation. So Jesus was somebody of, of not just bold actions, but primarily of bold words. He was, he was somebody that did a lot of good things. He was a man of deed, but he was also a man of the word. One other thing to point out from this paragraph, um, Jesus had large, goal, uh, large crowds. He did. He had large crowds. Attracted large crowds. But that wasn't his goal. In fact, again, you read through all the Gospels, uh, I, would, I would say that, that Jesus is actually pretty, pretty good at thinning his crowds. He, he seems to start with big crowds and then they get smaller and smaller and smaller as people begin to realize who he really is and what's really in store for him. That there's a cost to the discipleship. Jesus' goal was never large crowds. His goal was that people would know him and they would enter the kingdom of God. That was his goal. And so we see that Jesus was a prayer and that people were already wrestling with who Jesus really is and wanting to conform them to conform him to their image. And then we look at this next paragraph, 40 through 45. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, Now I, I want you to understand that. You and I read this today and we kind of shrug our shoulders and go, yeah, okay, somebody who's sick or diseased goes to Jesus. So what? In this day, this would, have been, this would have been a shocking account. This was troubling to a lot of people. That somebody who uh, had such a public and well-known and scary disease as leprosy would so boldly walk up to Jesus like this. This is, as people were reading this, they might gasp. As people actually watched this, they were gasping as well, we can imagine. 
And he said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. So this person who had leprosy believes that Jesus can heal him, but the question is, is he willing to heal him? He knows he can get help from Jesus, but is Jesus willing to give him that help? Moved with pity. Jesus is moved with pity. Uh, A number of people would like to take Jesus and just turn him into a really good teacher, somebody that's really cerebral. But what we see throughout the Gospels is that while Jesus is a good teacher, he's also a man of compassion, a man of affection, uh, a man who is moved with pity, a man who weeps on more than one occasion. Most of us can can, um, recall John chapter 11. You know, Jesus wept. It's the easiest Bible verse to memorize. It's only two words. But Jesus also wept over Jerusalem as well as he was entering Jerusalem right before what we celebrate is as Easter. So he's a man that, that also pitied people as well. And so he was moved with pity and he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him uh, and sent him away at once. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to, mo- uh, to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and, and to pr- spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and the people were coming out to him from every quarter. So let's talk about what's going on here. An unclean person. We're talking about he is considered ceremonially unclean in the Jewish public sphere uh, because he has leprosy. And he's coming into a crowd of clean people and specifically going to the cleanest one of all, the rabbi, and he's willing to approach him. This is a huge risk. This, this man with the leprosy um, could have been rebuked in such a way that could have led to his execution and stoning even. Because the lepers at this time, the unclean people at time, were seen as outcasts. They were hated, they were ridiculed, and they were marginalized. And people in that time saw lepers uh, with a combination of fear and disgust. They were afraid of them, but they were also disgusted with them. And they would, and they would say things like, in their own self-righteous way, which we, in the 21st century, we don't battle with self-righteousness, which is good. In, in their own self-righteous way, Um, they would say things like, well, the reason he's got that or the reason she's like that is because of their sin. You see, I'm okay because I'm I'm not like that. I'm not a sinner. And of course, this is just like good grief. This is, this is, um, uh, Bible hermeneutics 101. We have to ask ourselves the question, who are the marginalized and unclean people today? Who are those that we identify today? Now, we are way more sophisticated about it today. We, we hardly ever talk about this out loud because it would be uncouth to do so. Some of you are even a little uncomfortable that I would have the nerve to even bring it up on a Sunday morning, nice church morning like this. But who are those people that we identify, and we may hold it in, but we identify as those people that we avert our eyes from, that we cross to the other side of the road, that we don't want to be in community with, that we reject them, we marginalize them, we want to keep them away. They're they're the people that are different from us. They don't look like us. They don't behave like us. We don't understand them. And, And we see them as 
unclean. We wouldn't necessarily use that word, but that's the way we treat them. And again, we're just like them. We, we dismiss it and we say it to the, ourselves often. Well, it's their fault. They ought to know better. They must have, their sin must have, must have gotten them into the predicament that they're in. Well, perhaps that's true. I'm not saying that our sin doesn't have consequences. It often has consequences, very direct and real consequences. That's one of the reasons we shouldn't do it because there are direct and real and unpleasant consequences. But we need to remember that it's not just somebody else's sin. We live in a fallen and corrupt world. Everybody sins. This world is corrupt. We're all marginalized if you want to look at it this, that way. It's not just their sin. It's sin and it's our sin as well. We need to understand that. We're, we're in this same boat. So while the man, as I mentioned earlier, did not doubt Jesus' ability to heal, he did doubt his willingness to heal. Marginalized people look at us in the church. They don't doubt our ability to help them, but they do doubt our willingness to help them. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. And in their context, uh, one of the challenges is that rabbis would ra- rarely help in this situation. There wasn't really anything they could do, and they wanted to stay away because they couldn't be made unclean by getting near or touching uh, the leper. But Jesus willingly became unclean in order to make him clean. And that's obviously what he does for you and I today. He who knew no sin went to the cross and became sin so that you and I would be made righteous so that you and I would be justified so that you and I could enter the kingdom of God so that you and I could be made clean. He was willing to do that for us and he was willing to do this uh, for this man as well. And, and again, here's where that self-righteousness can get in our way. I mean, there's, there's people who are like, I, I, I don't really see the need. I'm clean without Jesus. And Jesus would confront you in that moment and he would say, no, you're really not. And he would go, right to the issue of your heart. He knows the issue of your heart. He would find that issue of your heart where you are unclean. You've done a good job of hiding it from everybody else and maybe from yourself, but you can't hide it from Jesus. That passage that we're going to get to in a few minutes that David read um, indicates that Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking. He knows our thoughts. He knows who we are really. You and I are pretty good at fooling other people, but we can't fool God. And we need him. And then it was common. This is an interesting part of the, of the story. It's common that if somebody is healed of something, if something like this happens to somebody, somehow the, um, their, uh, their situation, their disease, whatever it is, they go away and suddenly um, they believe they're clean again and they can re-enter the community. Uh, they were supposed to go to the priest and make an offering and then be pronounced clean by the priest. This was how they, this was the correct way to do it. And Jesus knew this procedure and respected the procedure and he wanted the, the leper to follow that. But, but he also then tells the leper, I don't want you to tell anybody about this. Remember last week we talked about this as well. Jesus is really bent in these early chapters of Mark when he does something like this, please don't tell anybody. Please keep it to yourself. He's trying to control the message. Again, he has his reasons. Jesus has his idea of how the kingdom needs to unfold. He wants to be able to move around freely and go into any town that he wants to go into. Uh, His vision of the kingdom is way different than other people's vision of the kingdom. And so he doesn't want that message to be skewed by, by the people who've been healed. 
Because Jesus' vision is bigger than just the healing. It's, it's about the kingdom of God of which he is the king. You know, the common perception of the Messiah in their day was that the Messiah was going to come. He was going to renew Israel's military might. They were going to kick Rome's butt all the way back across the Mediterranean and stick them right there in Rome and make them stay there. And then he was going to make everybody's life easy. That was their vision of the Messiah. And Jesus says, no, that's not my vision of the kingdom. The kingdom's good. In fact, it's even better than that. But it's not about that. But the guy couldn't help himself. He told the guy who healed him, tells him, don't do this. And, but he couldn't help himself. So why couldn't, why couldn't he? There, this has application to us too, why he couldn't help himself. Some people say, well, his joy just got the best of him. Have you ever had your joy just get the best of you? You make some bad decisions in the midst of your joy when you're celebrating. I've made some pretty bad decisions when I'm celebrating. I feel like when I've conquered something and I've got a big life victory that I'm sort of invincible, and that's when I've made some of my worst mistakes. It's kind of interesting. Now, the illustration I'm going to use, some of you it won't connect, but it connects with me. I don't know why I remember this so vividly. Um, It's an old, old, old TV show. Yes, even older than Seinfeld. Um, I hardly ever watched it as a kid, but I do remember one episode very well, or at least I think I do. The name of the show is The Twilight Zone. Anybody remember that? Yeah. Okay. Is it on Netflix or something? Maybe um, some of you could watch it now. Rod Steiger and all that stuff. Anyway, th- this episode was there was, a, there was a shopkeeper in a town, and, and he was a respectable man, a respectable shopkeeper, but he was perceived by the people in the town as a little bit foolish, and um, he was barely making ends meet. He was working hard, barely making ends meet. And then I don't remember if he won the lottery or if, if he had a relative die and leave him a lot of money. But the next thing you know, he had a million dollars. And I want you to understand, this was the early 60s when a million dollars was like a million dollars. <laughs> it's a lot of money, okay? And he was so excited about this money that that people started coming in and they heard he won this money and they started telling uh, him their sob story and he just started passing out money and of course then word spread and other people came in and they all had sob stories and then finally one guy walks in, he's in a suit and a hat and looking very businesslike and, and the guy says, so what's your story? And he says, well, my story is I'm from the Treasury Department with the IRS and here's what you owe. And so he took everything else that the man had left except $5. He lost it all, essentially. His his joy kind of screwed everything up for him. Here's another theory. I actually have two more that that people talk about. This one, a lot of the scholars really lean into. The guy went out and started telling people because he became the center of attention when he started telling people. You know, we, we all want that, that um, rush of fame. All of us have that. We, that. That 15 minutes of fame, that two hours of fame, what, whatever it might be. I have just read article after article after article lately of how people who have made it in show business, their greatest fear is that it won't last. That's their greatest fear because they love that rush. It's, it's the reason why social media is so popular. I mean, you just have to admit, just admit it. You get that little rush when somebody favorites a tweet or likes you on Facebook or comments on a picture that you put. Po- you get that little rush. I was having coffee with a guy a couple weeks ago. He doesn't go to this church. He's a single guy in his 30s, never been married. And he's on a couple of the dating sites, Christian Mingle and, and Match.com or something. 
And he was telling me, I have to admit, he says, I get a little rush when I know that somebody's been looking at my profile. I just get a little rush. And so this guy went out and did this because he became the center of attention. He had his moment of glory, his moment in the sun. There's one more. Here, here it is. <laughs> Again, this would never happen in the 21st century with Christians today because we know better. But, but this guy thought he knew better than Jesus. Well, I know this is what Jesus wants me to do, but I know better. I need to go and tell everybody. I have a better plan than Jesus. How many of you admit you have a better plan than Jesus? Not a lot of hands. Yeah, okay. Only honest people right there. We all do that, you know. It's so interesting. We'll pray and we'll say, God, got this situation. Um, and don't worry, God, I've done a lot of the legwork for you, Okay. Isn't that nice of me? So I think that the best thing to do in this situation would either be uh, A, that's really my favorite, but B or C, those would work as well. And God comes back and goes, how about Q? And we're like, hmm. But he has a better plan. And the consequence, of course, is that Jesus had to move his ministry around. His ministry was first and foremost and primarily a ministry of the word to preach and, uh, and proclaim the gospel and the kingdom of God. The miracles are there to, to verify and substantiate his teaching and to identify Jesus as Lord. He has bold words, certainly, but he can speak those bold words because he is Lord, and so he needs to be able to substantiate that, as we'll see now in this last passage that David read us. Let me reread it one more time, and then we'll get into it. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door, in this house where they were. They were having a little Bible study. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. You ever had a Bible study that was so popular that people were coming in through the roof? How many of you enjoy calling roofers in Arizona? Let me ask you that right now. Now, this roof was made of a combination of clay and leaves and twigs. Nevertheless, it was a pain in the neck, I'm sure, that the owner of this house had to eventually repair his roof. So, <clears throat> uh, they opened the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when, they, and when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son... Your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, this must have been a little bit uh, shocking that Jesus knew what they were thinking. How many of you are mind readers and you use that you know, in your relationship? How many of you like to be? No, you don't want to be a mind reader. I saw a Gilgan's Island episode once where you don't want to be a mind reader. Doesn't work, okay? And immediately, Jesus perceived in his spirit, why are you questioning these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man, me, Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns and says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never saw anything like this. You know, desperate people have faith. Desperate people have faith, right? Now, 
It doesn't necessarily mean that their faith is being placed in the right things. But it's true that when we become desperate about something, we will look around for anything to place our faith in. Desperate people have faith. And, 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 and what do we do today that we're in pure desperation about? I know people who are chronically ill and they have desperation and so they're going from doctor to doctor and spending lots of money. We'll see that again in Mark chapter 5. The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, she lost all of her money. She had talked to many physicians. That, that happens today too. Constantly looking for a new way to treat something that nobody's been able to diagnose or to help you with. I understand why people get desperate. We get desperate about a lot of things. During football season, people are desperate to get to the Cardinals games, it seems like, you know. Spend all day there. We're, some of us are so desperate for the new iPhone release that we'll sleep there overnight in, 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 uh, in the Biltmore, you know, waiting for the store to open. But verse 5, I think, is, is one of the most interesting verses you're ever going to see. Here's a guy who can't walk. And he desperately wants to be able to walk. He's heard that Jesus has been able to heal. And they're so desperate that they lower him down from the roof. They break open this guy's house and they lower him down from the roof and now he's being lowered down and Jesus looks him right in the eye and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Was Jesus confused? <laughs> Is that why the guy was there? I, I need to go and get my sins forgiven. That's why they're lowering me down from the roof. I need my sins forgiven. That's my greatest need in life. No. My guess, it's not in the text. I'm outside of the text here, but my guess is that the guy kind of looked at him and was like, well, that's really neat, big guy, but I'd really like to walk. That's why I'm here. Okay? Here's the difference between Jesus and what you and I generally seek in faith. Jesus always gives us what we need and not what we want. One of the greatest cosmic jokes that God could ever play on us is to just give us what we want. We don't really believe that, but it's true. I love this quote from Cynthia Hamel. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, He grants your temporal worldly wish. A lot of discomfort in the room right now because you're thinking, well, I wish He'd grant mine. I'd know how to steward that wish really well. Okay, so three touch points, and it starts with this, this statement there, when Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, what's important to Jesus? It's faith. It's trust. It's believe. It's the same Greek word. It's the Greek word pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S, transliterated, pistos. It's, it's translated as faith, trust, and believe in the New Testament, and it's used throughout the New Testament John says at the end of his gospel, Jesus did many other things, but these I have recorded so that you may believe, pistos, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. Faith is really important to God, to Jesus. Many of us want to know, how can we please God and we want to do things that please God? Nothing wrong with that. That's really good. But then we make our mistake and think that, that doing stuff is what pleasing God. Do you know what? You know what pleases God more than anything? Read the Scriptures. Pleasing God more than anything is just believing in Him. Because He knows that if, you have, if He has your heart, if you believe in Him, 
He's got your heart now. You're going you're gonna to live as a kingdom person. You're gonna, in relationship, you're going to start to live out your faith and you're going to be conformed to Christ. And that's going to please him. But primarily, it's going to be your faith that pleases him. So when it comes to trusting and pleasing God, pick first trusting God because by, by consequence, you will then be pleasing God. Uh, some of us, though, look at the Christian faith like we look at other worldviews and philosophies and mechanisms, and, and, and we look at that and we say, you know, I, I want to trust God because it's going to be this transactional deal. I trust God, I place my faith in God, and He's going to owe me something then. And we, we look at it like this little transaction thing that God's going to make our lives much easier and better. He's going he's to fulfill our agenda. You, so much in our culture today, I, I just run into this all the time. You know, I run into people who, who, who don't want anything to do with church or Christianity or any organized, they say organized religion. I guess they're looking for a disorganized religion. I don't know. But they don't, they, they don't want anything to do with any of that. But they always claim, but I'm a spiritual person. I want to be a spiritual person. I'm into spirituality. Spirituality is very important to me. I, I want to be right with the, the cosmos and I want to have inner peace. But what's the reason? I always ask that follow-up reason. Well, so that my life would be good and I could achieve my goals and I could... I could do what I want to do and I could have success. It's always for circumstantial success. It's not for something even bigger than that, which is to enter the kingdom of God with the true king, Jesus. Many people want Christianity or they come to Christianity not because they're going to be able to develop the type of character that discerns the wisdom and the will of God. Not, not because um, it, they're going to become the type of person that can live in community and serve others but rather they come to Christianity hoping that it'll somehow help them fulfill their agenda, their dreams, their goals, and, their, and the achievements that they want in life. So we desire, many of us, especially in kind of our Western mindset, we desire a formula or a methodology or a routine. And these are what, the, the, and by the way, these are the faiths and the philosophies of the world. They know that and so they press into that because they know that that attracts our attention and we like that stuff. That's what the world tries to sell us, but it's, but it's lies, it's deception, it never really works. The Bible tells us the truth. In this world, you're going to have trouble. And then begins the long work of conforming us to the image of God's Son, Jesus. That's what it's about to live as kingdom people, conform to his image. The point of faith is that God is a loving and willing God who will give us what we need, but not necessarily what we want because he knows better what we need. And we need him to conform us to his son. Here's the second thing. We all need healing of some sort. We all do. Every last one of us needs healing of some sort. And here's why. It's because of sin. Because we're living in this corrupt society where there's, everything is just wasting away. Everything is perishing, including us. Our outer bodies are wasting away. So we all need healing of some sort. So if Jesus says to this guy, your sins are forgiven, we should desire that he says to us also, your sins are forgiven because that's the biggest need that we have. That is the ultimate healing that we can have is that our sins would be forgiven and I understand we want physical healing, all of us. I get that. I do too. I'm 55. I hate the way my body continues to betray me more and more. Gravity is winning, my brothers and sisters. And it isn't fun. Getting old is, is not for wimps. And we want to be emotionally healthy. 
I do too. Man, I would really like to have my emotions tempered in such a way that they fit every situation perfectly. I would love that. We want wisdom and we want discernment. All of those things, physical healing, emotional health, wisdom, and discernment, they're all victims of the rebellion of Genesis 3. We can't have those in a world that's been corrupted by Genesis 3. We can't just have those things. We need Christ. We need the healing that, that He brings. We, we, need, we need a healing from outside of us because sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. Let me Hear this. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. Every economic problem that we face, every social problem that we face, every racial problem that we face, every political problem that we face, every educational problem that we face, every neighborhood problem that we face, every environmental problem that we face is at root a spiritual problem. It's because of sin. And we're fallen creatures, and so we develop these systems to fix these problems. But understand, as fallen creatures, we develop what? Fallen systems and broken systems to fix what is broken. And then we stand around and go, well, that didn't work. The problem is sin. The problem is spiritual. And individually for each of us, the problem in each of our lives is not necessarily the suffering and the pain and the trials, those are merely symptoms of our bigger problem, which is sin. Just like the roof crasher. His biggest problem was not that he couldn't walk. His biggest problem was that he was a sinner. I, I've said this before. People come as a pastor and they tell me what their problems are. Here's my biggest problem. It's rare, if ever, that somebody will say, my biggest problem is pride. My biggest problem is that I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven for my sins. You know what they say? My biggest problem is my boss. My biggest problem is my spouse. My biggest problem is my kids. My biggest problem is my church. My biggest problem is everyone else and everything else and not me. That's tough stuff, I know. But we are the problem because of our sin and we need to be able to see that. And I know we get pulled in all these other directions. I'm not denying the reality of that. But this is our biggest problem, the, the problem of sin. And, and here's the challenge that Jesus gives us. The challenge is that He insists that you and I go deeper than just our pain and our suffering and our trials to what is at root, the real issue. He's saying, listen, I empathize, I, I'm, I feel pity for you, I am compassionate about the pain that you are in, but let's go even deeper. I will not allow you as a follower of me to stay on the surface where we're just with the symptoms. We are going to go deeper. And these are bold words. But he can speak these bold words because he's Lord. I'm guessing that the roof crasher went to Jesus with this kind of thought in his mind. Please, Jesus, if I could just walk, I would be happy for the rest of my life. I would never complain. I would serve God fervently. I would become the best friend, the best worker, and the best romantic partner in the history of the world if I could just walk again. And you and I know that's going to last, what, a couple weeks? 
The, the euphoria that we believe we will have when we finally get the biggest worldly goal of our lives never lasts as long as we think it will. Just ask any athlete who has won a championship and they will tell you, it was great, but it didn't last as long as I thought. Just ask any salesperson who closes the deal of a lifetime. It was great, but you know what? Two weeks later, I was like, what's the next deal? I'm on to something else. Just ask any person who passed their comprehensive exams and their dissertation defense. I thought like that was it. I walked out at ASU going, man, I am the man. I'm just walking around the ASU campus and I'm going, I know everybody's looking at me and they're going, oh, that guy just got his degree. Look at me, man. I bought an ASU t-shirt and by the halfway home I was like, I guess I better get a job. <laughs> Keller writes this, the roots of the discontent of the human heart go deep, deeper than you and I can ever imagine. The roots of the discontent of the human heart go deep, deeper than you and I can ever imagine. And the stuff that we think is going to satisfy us will never satisfy us the way Jesus can satisfy us. Now, hear me. It's not that these things are bad, please. Working hard, desiring success and achievement, I'm all for it. And I, I desperately hate to see people suffer, especially chronically. I get it. But when we turn these desires into ultimate desires, we turn them into a God. We turn them into an idol. And we begin to worship that rather than the real God. And let me tell you something about false gods. If you fail your false God, that false God will never forgive you the way Jesus does. And if you achieve your false God, you somehow embrace it and catch it and get it, that false God will never fulfill you the way Jesus fulfills you. And that's why false gods never fail to fail us. They never fail to fail us. We need to get rid of looking at those things. Only Jesus can forgive and fulfill. Now, I want to take a little left turn for just a minute and answer this question because I know people ask this question a lot. They say, well, why doesn't, if Jesus has the power to physically heal us all now, why not now? Why doesn't he just heal us all now? And the answer is because the kingdom of God has not come fully yet. When he heals, he's giving us a foretaste of the kingdom. He's saying this is what it's going to be like in the new Jerusalem. No sin, no tears, no suffering, no pain. That's what it's going to be like here. I'll give you a foretaste. But in the meantime, we still have to deal with the fact that we live in a fallen and a corrupt place where there's sin and there's consequences of sin. And I know this can be frustrating. And one of the hardest things that you and I will have to do in our faith is we have to look at our lives, however long they are, up to what now, 110 years maybe? We have to look at our lives and recognize that that's only a blip on the screen compared to the eternal life we're going to have. And we must trust that our perspective today does not comprehend the gravity of eternal reality. And that does take faith. It comes back to faith. Finally, number three, Jesus is Lord. We might say this 50 times during this series. Jesus is Lord. Just expect it when you come in here. He's Lord. He is King. We have one message at redemption. Jesus is Lord. And he demonstrates that here again. He says your sins are forgiven. Those are pretty bold words. He knew he was going to get pushback on that, right? It's funny because um, 
the Hebrew prophets of old would say to somebody something like this, the Lord has put away your sins. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. There's a difference there. Jesus is saying, your sins are actually against me. He's making a clear claim to be God here. He's making a lordship claim by not saying, your sins have been put away, but rather, you are forgiven. I am forgiving you. And here's how he proves it. He says, so which is easier? Well, frankly, on the surface, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because who can prove it, right? That's the easiest thing to say, your sins are forgiven. Of course, that's the easiest thing to say. Nobody can prove it, but Jesus can. He heals the guy. Now he looks around and goes, what do you say now? Looks like I do have the authority to forgive sins. And the healing is great. I know many of us are just like the guy um, on the mat when Jesus says your sins are forgiven and we go, no, that's really not why I'm here. I want to walk again. But what we really need is our sin problem to be eradicated. And so to prove that he can do that, Jesus heals this guy in front of everybody. That's the ultimate end of the discussion event. Amen? That puts everything to rest. Jesus is Lord. He has all power and all authority. And what we realize is that once we get past the surface, we find the truth of the matter that forgiving sin is actually more difficult than healing the guy because only God can forgive sin. That is the most difficult thing, is to forgive sin because only God can do that. And He does that for us through Jesus Christ. And only the Lord is someone who can give us forgiveness that makes us absolutely justified and righteous now while we are still sinners. I think this is the most amazing thing. Again, going back to Martin Luther, uh, he wrote it like this in, in the Latin. Forgive me if I don't pronounce this correctly, but he writes this. We are simul justus et peccator. Those of us who are in Christ are simultaneously justified and yet sinners. Simultaneously. That's an amazing thing. We're still sinning, right? Amen? And yet God looks at us because of Christ and sees us as justified. It's this reason that there was a guy um, named Philip Melanchthon. He was Luther's, probably Luther's best friend, somebody that Luther was kind of discipling. And and Melanchthon, like Luther, had a lot of doubts and an occasional um, bout with depression or something. And and they would write letters back and forth. And we have copies of some of these letters. And and Melanchthon wrote Luther one time and was just saying, I just, I really, I, I look at how much I sin and I just doubt my salvation. How could God possibly love somebody who continues to sin even though grace has been extended to him? And this is where we get that that phrase, some of you know it. You've heard it before. Preachers use it all the time. Luther said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. This is where we get it. But in context, here's what Luther's actually saying. The word boldly could really be more appropriately translated as sin with confidence or sin bravely because you know that you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's Luther referencing the book of Hebrews. That because of what Christ has done, you and I can boldly and confidently approach the throne of grace. So when we sin, 
Luther's not encouraging us to sin. He's not telling us to go out and sin. He would be against sin, just so you know. He would be against sin. But what he's saying is that when you do sin, have the confidence to know that Jesus is bigger than your sin, no matter what it is. So be bold about that. Be confident and be brave, not because of you, but because of Jesus, the one who justifies us. Let me pray and... uh, Rick and Cody will come up and lead us in our time of response. God, we thank you for this reminder of who you really are and what you've done for us. And so we ask that we would be brave and confident in coming to your throne of grace and that it's your throne of grace because you are Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.